Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Tracy Vieira, CEO at Screen Queensland. It's fantastic to have you along today. I really enjoyed my conversation with Tracy. I'd not met her prior to this interview, but she came with a very strong reputation, having won in 2016 the Telstra Queensland Businesswoman of the Year. And certainly her accomplishments at a young age, not only within her current professional role, but also her many board roles, which we will talk about during this interview, is a tremendous achievement. And it was fantastic to hear how she went about building her personal brand and also creating the opportunity to develop such a career at a relatively young age. Before I introduce Tracy to you properly, let me briefly introduce myself for those who are new to the podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive. And we recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. So if you have any recruitment requirements within your own organisation, I would welcome the opportunity to have a talk to you about how we can assist. Let me now introduce to you Tracy. Tracy Vieira is the CEO at Screen Queensland, a role she's held since February 2014. Screen Queensland's role is to develop, fund and support the local screen industry, attract production to Queensland and to celebrate an active screen culture across the state. As well as her CEO role, she is a non-executive director with Media Ring, the Sunshine Coast Council's Arts Advisory Board, Australians in Film Board, also a non-executive director with the RSPCA Queensland, and a non-executive director with Q Music. She has completed a Bachelor of Education and Communication with a major in Film and Television at the Queensland University of Technology, and also has undertaken management qualifications at the USC Marshall School of Business in America. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Tracy Vieira. So Tracy, welcome to the Arate podcast. It's uh, fantastic to have you along and we're sitting here in your office in Newstead in Queensland. Uh, Perhaps to begin with, just uh, give us a quick overview of your current responsibilities. Well, thank you for having me on. Uh, At the moment, I am the Chief Executive Officer of Screen Queensland, Uh uh, which is a government-owned corporation. And I'm also on five boards. So I'm on the board of Q Music the board of the Sunshine Coast Arts Advisory Board. So um, just to explain those really quickly, Q Music does a lot of work with music across Queensland mm-hmm. and have the biggest music industry event um, in Australia, which mm-hmm. is called Big Sound. And we also do a lot of work with regional and remote artists. Uh, Sunshine Coast Arts Advisory Board is really about looking at a 20-year plan for arts and culture on the Sunshine Coast, and we're developing up what that should look like, um, and ultimately we'll come out with a plan for the, for the Sunshine Coast. Mm-hmm. I'm on the board of Media Ring, which is about driving more employment for Indigenous, um, so Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. Also on the board of the RSPCA Queensland, which is really a passion for me, um, animal welfare and animal advocacy. Um, and I can talk, I'll talk a little bit about that, sure. hopefully, as yeah, we definitely. go along, um, because I also do some volunteer work there, which I love. Oh, great. And I'm on the board of the Gold Coast Arts Centre, right. which is moving from just being a venue to an entire precinct. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're going through a fair amount of growth in terms of what that is uh, therefore particularly the community of the Gold Coast. So it would be uh, fair to say that you're a very busy lady. <laughs> I am an extremely busy um, woman, but very passionate about all of the things I do. So I find them um, absolutely joyous to get up and do. Fantastic. Um, and I suppose your primary role being CEO of Screen uh, Queensland. Yes. Let's just have a little bit of a talk about sure. that, the mandate for the organisation, the scope of the role, etc. Mm, so Screen Queensland... 
has been around for 25 years this year, so mm -hmm. has been here for a little while. Um, our mandate is really around three areas. One is the development and investment in production. And uh, that's for three reasons. One is cultural. It's really important um, as Australians that we get to hear our stories mm -hmm. and our accents and a bit about us reflected on the screen. Um, and so we really develop talent in terms of writers, producers and directors. Uh, and we also invest in projects and everything from uh, YouTube uh, to drama, documentaries, feature films. So the full gamut of what screen can look like. Mm -hmm. Secondly, production attraction. And production attraction is really about bringing new money into the economy. Uh, and the wonderful thing is it sits with us, which m means we can really you know, get some growth opportunities for our industry out of it, such as attachment programs and crew and so on. Um, but you know, ultimately, uh, it could really sit with trade as well because it's really about bringing new money into the economy and, mm -hmm. and growing jobs in the state. And, and that ha has happened in a very big way. Mm -hmm. um, and the third one is screen culture. So we support uh, screen culture activities all across Queensland. At the moment, we invest in about 32 different um, film festivals. Okay. Everything from up in Cape York, out to Winton, right. uh, Gold Coast, Gympie, Gladstone. So, yeah, a fairly fast range of things. And that's really about making sure people have access to, again, stories that otherwise you may not get to hear, mm -hmm. um, points of view of different people from across the world in terms of how they tell their stories and how we interrelate with each other in terms of our cultures. Okay. Mm. And uh, what about the scope of the organisation in terms of headcount, number of employees and uh, turnover and those kind of things? Sure. So we have 20 employees at uh -huh. Screen Queensland. We have an office both in Brisbane and at the Gold Coast. Um, but we do look after all of Queensland, so there is a fair bit of travel up and down the coastline um, as a result mm -hmm. and, and inland as well. Uh, we have base funding of just under $10 million. Um, last year we did about $218 million in terms of Queensland production expenditure from things that we invested in. Okay. Uh, which is one of the, I think, the second best sort of outcome in the 25 years of the organisation okay. and we're certainly on track for a bigger th year this year. Right. So and is that inclusive of international spend attracted here or is that just spend in on Australian production? Yes, no, that includes international okay, spend right. as well. Okay, sure. Mm. Okay, cool. And uh, you mentioned it's a government-owned corporation, yes. so who ultimately do you report to? Yes, yeah, so I have a board that's appointed by Cabinet Okay. and uh, that board has six members on it right. um, and the chair is Linda Appelt, who's okay. um, an incredible woman yes, in her own right um, and does some work with Montrose as yep. their CEO. Okay. And so we have a very passionate board who are uh, very clear on their objectives and the strategy of the organisation. And yes, they were appointed by Cabinet almost two years ago. Right. And one of the things I'm keen to talk about a bit later is uh, Telstra's 2016 Queensland Businesswoman of the Year. Yes. Quite a uh, accomplishment. Thank you. Yes. So that happened in November last year, so right. not very long ago. Uh um, and it has been, you know, really, I, I think, for the organisation and for our industry, really important because, um, you know, I also got the, the Corporate and Business Award. And mm -hmm. I think that that really helped us sort of communicate that what we are doing is a business. Sure. Um, and that there are some real business objectives that we're achieving. And okay. so, yes, I'm very proud of that. Oh, good for you. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that's, uh, you know, a very uh, broad and uh, busy uh schedule of different things that you're involved in and it's going to be interesting to hear that how that all came to be so yes. why don't we go back to uh where it all began and tell us a little bit about you know where you were born and mum and yes. dad and growing up etc so I was born in Lismore so okay. New South Wales not a Queenslander by birth but certainly by state of origin uh-huh <laughs> and uh born in the same hospital but that my mother and grandmother were at right. Lismore Base Hospital okay uh but spent most of my early life literally growing up in the south side of Brisbane. Right. So Watson Road Primary School, then Acacia Ridge. Okay. Um, as a housing commission kid. Um, what brought your... Obviously, your mum was, you know, multi-generational Lismore person. Yes. So what brought your family to Brisbane? Yeah, so... Um, my, we moved a fair bit when, when I was quite young, okay. uh, so I was born in Lismore but my parents were actually living in Sydney at the time okay. and went back to Lismore where um, the family were from right. for my arrival. Uh, then spent a little bit of time in Coffs Harbour, uh -huh. uh, mostly for my dad travelling for work. What sort of work did he so do? So at that stage he was doing um, 
some work with Ford, I think, as a collector. Okay. So a bit of dangerous work going out to chase up money from people. Right. Um, or, or sort of repossess the cars. Okay. And then later um, in the Housing Commission. Right. And as I mentioned, uh, we were Housing Commission ourselves. So, okay. Um, then I think he really had an opportunity to come to Brisbane for some work and mm-hmm. then sort of a change of direction right? Um, in terms of his own life. And so that brought us here when I was in grade three. Okay. Uh, and really then he moved into sport. My mother was a stay-at-home mum with uh, four children. Right. And what number were you? I was in, in the middle. Okay. <laughs> so there was actually five of us born. I had a sister who died quite young. Okay. So I would have been the third. I right. am the third child by okay. birth. But... Um, only daughter, uh-huh. so second eldest now. Right. There's four of us. Um, yeah, my mum was stay at home for a long time. Mm-hmm. And then when my youngest brother went to school, she went back to university and got a degree and went right. to become a school teacher. Okay, great. And, uh, and so um, primary schooling and high mm. schooling in Brisbane? Yes, so both in right. Brisbane. Uh, so as I mentioned, Watson Road Primary School in Acacia yeah. Ridge. And then initially to Salisbury High, which doesn't exist any longer. Right. Um, and then my senior two years at Sunnybank High School oh, before okay. I went to university. Okay, great. And while you were at high school, did you have any part-time jobs or anything like I that? I did. So I got my first job when I was 14 years of age. Right. So I started as a dishwasher in a uh-huh. coffee shop. Okay. Um, and then went on to work at a new Coles that opened up in the Sunnybank Plaza <laughs> at the checkout. Right. Uh, so yeah, really worked from the first age that I was eligible to work. Yeah. And, you know, I think that I got that very much from my parents you know we did have it tough growing up we didn't have a lot of money and um and I saw you know friends had things that we could never afford right um and so really had a drive to uh earn some money so I could buy the things that I wanted okay um really very very early on and in fact I'd say that my brothers were exactly the same right We're, we're all quite driven um, and a little bit competitive with each other. Okay. So even um, now, even now, yes, we still fight for the front seat of my parents' car <laughs> for <if we're> together. <laughs> Doesn't matter how old we get. I think no, we'll still be sure. doing that when we're in our seventies. Um, yeah, and I and I do think that comes out of having a bit of a hard life early on. Yeah. And, you know, some real challenges financially mm. and, and being able to witness that, which I think okay. is a good thing. Right. You know, we, we knew that that was the case. Sure. Um, and that certainly made me very keen to be able to have my own income as soon right. as I could. And when you were at high school, you know, what did you want to be when you grew up? I'm still trying to figure that uh, out. Me too. <laughs> um, look, I've always had a passion for the arts. Yeah. Uh, loved film and television uh, very early on and... You know, I think like probably most teenage girls had a fantasy about being in, on camera okay. very at that early stage. Yeah. Um, but that's actually not my personality right. <laughs> at all. I, I'm very uncomfortable in front of a camera. Um, and discovered that I actually later, as I mm-hmm. as I grew up, discovered I had the business mm-hmm. sort of acumen rather than the creative right. acumen. Sure. But I do love the arts, and I love the sort of creative sector, right. and so I very quickly found that I want to be part of that and I knew that I did very young but mm-hmm. where I sat in it probably is different as an adult than what I wanted as a kid. Sure. I listened to uh, Mark Maron's podcast. Do you listen to that? No. Oh, Mark Maron's an American podcaster and yes. he, uh, his podcast is called WTF and he interviews a lot of actors <laughs> and directors and musicians and so on but yes. he, he, he's an actor himself and when he interviews actors and really talks about their craft and about how they learn their craft and so on I don't think people really realise what a, an, a, um, a tremendous commitment to their profession that there yes. is you, know, you think it's just a bit glamorous you show up on a set and do your thing but it's um, I mean it's a, it's a hard hard skill to master I oh, imagine oh absolutely and very competitive as well mm. like and um, there's so many factors that go into that and I'm, I'm, I'm married to an actor uh-huh. so I sort of see that other side of it as well right um, and I get to you know experience what he goes through mm-hmm. um, in that realm and he's an American actor so you know it's interesting having moved to Australia and him coming with me um, how the sort of two industries are got some comparable things but are also quite different right. and in Australia we're very nurturing of our creative talent which is probably why we've had so many successful actors mm-hmm. go international um, just in terms of when they go to audition and how they're that experience of reading whereas in America it's very much a you know a cattle call is probably the right. best description um, and it's really hard to get cut through and break through mm-hmm. and it is a craft um, mm-hmm. and it takes you know an immense commitment um, 
and it's one where you're constantly being criticised right. in, in a way that you probably wouldn't get in any other mm -hmm. field. So it takes a lot of courage to yeah, stick with absolutely. that too. And so um, you were at high school, you're mm. developing this passion for the arts, and then yes. you mentioned you went to university. I did. So what, what was uh, your initial professional qualifications? So I did a Bachelor of Education in Communications, uh -huh. and my major was Film and Television in right. English. Okay. Was that a fairly new qualification at the time? It was, and uh, you know, it was sort of driven again out of a passion for film and television. Um, and at that stage, there wasn't a lot of degrees in that area. Right. And I don't know that I ever wanted to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. That wasn't really my drive. It was really the access to film and television and the equipment, mm -hmm. and um, and and really wanting to work in that capacity. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, it was a four-year degree. It was one of the first years it was offered. Okay. Um, and I, you know, also had the incredible privilege at that time of um, being the first sort of exchange student that got to go to the U.S. Um, and a U.S. student come to Australia okay. at my place. So I got to go and do film and television in the U.S. as a result as well. Right. How long was that for? So it was just six months. Okay. But it opened my eyes to sort of how big film and television was mm -hmm. in the U.S. and how that worked there, which was very different to what mm -hmm. I had experienced. Right. Here. And working at Coles the whole way through? Yes. So I worked at Coles all the way through my university. Mm -hmm. um, did some other, you know, odds and ends and whatever it took to earn an income as well. I was at Woolies. So, oh, there uh, you go. <laughs> I, I was there for four years. I uh, started on my 15th birthday. Yes. So I... I uh, know exactly what you're talking to. And so um, once you finish your qualification, what, uh, mm. you know, what was next? Uh, so really, when I come to graduate, the interesting thing was it was the first year where there was a, an abundance of graduates for the less uh, positions in schools. Right. And they were moving from full-time... For teaching positions. For teaching positions. Yeah. So they were also moving at that time from uh, full-time teachers to contract positions. Mm -hmm. So it was a real shift in that thinking. Mm -hmm. And so I made the decision not to go ahead with teaching. And as I said, that really wasn't my passion. Um, but I didn't know what I was going to do, to be fair. And uh, at that time in Queensland, there used to be a quest called the Girl in a Million Quest, which okay. was through the RSL. Right. And the goal of that quest was really to bring a younger generation together with the war veterans mm -hmm. to raise money for things like dementia units, mm -hmm. um, for vehicles that would get sort of disabled vets to different things and so on. And so... What appealed to me about it was the chairman of the judging panel was a man called Les Riley, who was the managing director of Channel 7 in Brisbane. Okay. And I saw that as my way right. to get to this person. And so this is pre The Voice and you know, <laughs> all of these new channels to, uh, okay, cool. It was. And, um, you know, and I think that sometimes the way that opportunities come up, particularly now, it's not conventional. Like, you have to really go and chase things however oh, they come. Absolutely. And for me, that was that was probably shows a little bit of right. how I think. Uh -huh. It's not always conventional. Um, and so, yeah, so I went, I joined the Quest really thinking that he was the person I needed to get to know for, from a career perspective. as a competitor. As an entrant, yes. entrant, yeah. Correct. And, and this it, is after you've finished uni? Yes. But prior to getting a Correct. job? Okay. Correct. Um, so it was 1993 mm -hmm. and that was the year I graduated. Mm -hmm. So I had to raise money. Uh, so again, new experience in terms of asking people for money and having to raise funds. Um, and went through that process and actually did get to know him very well. Actually won the RSL Girl in a Million <laughs> quest oh, that year. Um, but the, the opportunity that come out of it actually wasn't the one I was looking for. Right. So I was thinking Channel 7, Les Riley. Mm -hmm. I ended up getting employed by a woman called Faye Rolf, who was a sponsor and uh -huh. had a um, modelling and acting school. Right. And I got um, hired by her to run that and okay. started working in the world of casting. Right. So for talent. So, you know, it wasn't the avenue I went in for, but mm -hmm. certainly was my first job in, okay. entry point into the industry. And is that school still around? It is around. It has changed names and ownership. Right. Uh, so it is now um, Natalie Hall, and I'm trying to think of what the... Natalie Hall is the owner. Right. Um, I think NHM is the, mm. the company name. Okay. And it is still there, the same office. Right. And, uh, yeah, still going. Oh, cool. And so how long were you there for? Well, so I was there for a period of time, and then I was approached by the Department of Veterans Affairs, who were also a sponsor of Girl in a Million, mm -hmm. to come in and write the life stories of the living First World War veterans. Okay. Uh, and it was for the 75th anniversary of Anzac Day, mm -hmm. and uh, and I got to go and interview all 69 of those who were still living right. in their own homes, most of them. 
um, and ask them questions about their experience. And for me, that was also a life-changing mm -hmm. opportunity uh, because, you know, they thought they were going off for an adventure. They got, faced all these challenges they'd never expected. Um, I think they were, they were aged between sort of 94 and 104 at the time I did right. those interviews. Uh, and just, you know, and as I said, most of them were still in their own homes. Mm. And I learned a lot through that experience mm. in terms of why I think that they were still surviving, which was really they kept themselves active. Mm -hmm. um, I asked them incredible questions about what had happened and I had some of their family members that would sit in on these interviews and they would say they've never heard these stories mm -hmm. before because no one had ever asked those mm -hmm. questions. It's fascinating. I mean, a big part of, you know, why mm -hmm. I do these podcasts, I just love to hear people's stories. Yes. And uh, I imagine it must have been the same for you. It was fantastic. Um, as I said, really changed my life and mm -hmm. opened my eyes to, uh, to people I'd never really been exposed to in that depth before and then that got published for the 75th anniversary okay. um, and then you know went to work for the RSL actually running their girl in a million quest but then sort of went back into this industry through events first of all mm -hmm. um, I worked for Queensland Events Corporation and worked in their media and marketing side and actually grew my career uh, in events, so mm -hmm. writing things like bid documents for events. Okay. What sort of events are you talking like about? Like World Figure Skating Championships, okay. World Firefighter Games, right. the Goodwill Games. So they were trying to attract international events to Queensland as the venue. Yes, exactly. Right. Okay. Okay. So the purpose of that, again, a government-owned company, very mm -hmm. similar setup to what we have here at Screen Queensland. And it was really about bringing new money and tourism into the state through these events. Mm -hmm. um, and my role was working on those bid documents, but also the media and marketing and PR and maximising the opportunity for Queensland um, to bring those people into the state for those events once they were secured. Right, and you were with them for a couple of years? So I was with them for a couple of years um, and you know worked on some major events. And you know it was a really, uh, I think, big growth time for me in terms mm -hmm. of my career um, and my growth through that company. Mm -hmm. And I then went overseas. Right. So what do you think it was, I mean, that was so uh, monumental in terms of your personal and professional growth in that period that sort of set you up for mm. the future? I had a few champions within the business and I think that that was um, really important for mm -hmm. me. So uh, the person I worked for, you know, really gave me a lot of responsibility sort of as a, at a coordinator level originally. And then I had um, another manager within that organisation who sort of become my champion mm -hmm. and started to give me some other work to do in the media and marketing side. And, you know, and that was experience I hadn't had before and it certainly wasn't um, something I'd done in my degree. Mm -hmm. Um, and from that, uh, the CEO really become a bit of a champion, could see that I, I had some skills. Mm -hmm. And when the media and marketing role become available, uh, they actually put me into that role. Okay. And then really nurtured my growth through that role right. and mentored me um, in that role. And so, yeah, so it was, you know, within a short period of time, I literally had three different roles within that organisation, each bigger. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I think that that was... Um, an opportunity for me to really grow business skills, mm -hmm. um, understand a broader aspect of business, but to really have people backing me so I never had sort of a fear of failure. Mm -hmm. And so um, what was it that uh, lured you over to the US? Well, it wasn't something that lured me at that time, so I actually got divorced. Okay. <laughs> so, and it was from my high school sweetheart, so right. uh, who I'd been with since I was 16 years of okay. age. And we'd been together for 12 years, and I really didn't know who I was as an individual. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, very tough for a woman to, sure. or for anyone really in that situation. Divorce is hard. Mm -hmm. And for me, I, yeah, I really didn't know who I was mm -hmm. and hadn't uh, really figured out, you know, who I wanted to be as just me, not as part of a couple. Mm -hmm. And so I went overseas on a bit of a six-week sabbatical but stayed for two years. Right, okay. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, went on my own. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was still, um, you know, young. Gave up my job while I was away because I wasn't. I did, had made the decision not to come back. Mm -hmm. And I went and worked at a summer camp of all things. Okay. And, but, you know, as it turns out, who I am as a person is I'm not very good at just doing something like that without seeing other opportunities. So mm -hmm. this summer camp also ran uh, a big blues and grass sort of music festival. 
and were really struggling. And I could see the opportunity to actually take them where they wanted to go. Mm -hmm. And so when the summer camp finished, I actually stayed on and actually helped build their music festival. And again, through all the sort of marketing and PR things that I've been doing at Queensland Events Corporation. But then my responsibility with that grew. And so I got to really see that festival through. And that was just before September 11th happened in the US. Mm -hmm. And that event, while I was there, sort of set me back home. Okay. So you were over there for a couple of years, Mm. purely working on that specific event. Yes, I was. And so that was an annual thing or it was a one-off type thing? No, so it was an annual event. So a big bluegrass music festival at the campsite where they had the girls camp. And yes, so just... You know, funny, I went in as a camp counsellor thinking right. it was for six weeks. Yeah. Um, but saw a real opportunity to grow an event. Okay. Um, and make it really meaningful for this small community. Right. And so And did you I develop stayed. a passion for blues and bluegrass then? <laughs> I really developed a passion for country music. Right. Which uh, I don't know that I'd really heard a lot of in Australia before I went in American country. Sure. And at some point, I remember one of the locals saying to me, you know more about country music than we do now. It's time for you to go. Uh, <laughs> about country music uh, I'm a musician uh, this is my hobby uh, is that you know we have this people who aren't really what aware of what's going on in country mm. think of the old Kenny Rogers and you know that kind of stuff but it's such a broad music genre really now and uh, everything from you know your old country to your uh, pop country and yes. it's a uh, it's massive so uh, yes. yeah I understand what you're saying and so what brought you then back to Australia so then September when September 11th happened um, you know I've it had a big impact I think all around the world but being in the US at that time and so far away from family I think that you know there was two things one I just I wanted to be closer to home Mm -hmm. and closer to family at that point and I also felt like I needed to get back to reality okay I was living a bit of a fantasy over there about um you know being away from home I'd really spent that time and figured out who I was and that Mm -hmm. I was ready to come back really Mm -hmm. And sort of step up and be the adult I needed to be again. Right. I guess is the best way to describe it. Um, so at that point, I actually reached out to the chairman of the company I'd worked for at Queensland Events Corporation, mm-hmm. and said to him, "Look, I'm going to come back to Australia. If you hear of any jobs, let me know." And instantly, he said, "I know of one that's coming up. You'd be perfect for it." Um, and he sent me the details, and I applied for that role. And, and what was that? That was the um, head of international production for uh-huh. the Pacific Film and Television Commission. Right. Okay. And so I did. I come back. I went through uh, the whole process of applying for that job. Mm-hmm. Um, gave it everything. I really studied for it. Is the only way mm-hmm. I can describe it. It. Uh, I, I wanted this job more than anything. And um, I remember meeting with the recruiter recruitment company, and. It was a two-hour interview, and I walked out of it and couldn't remember a single thing I'd said because I'd given it everything. I literally left it all in the room, mm-hmm. and uh, and then I was got the call, you know, to come in, and I had the meeting then with the organisation, with the CEO and some of the board members, and then was offered that role. Right, and I suppose um, that was really melding your events experience. Yes, it was. You know, with your passion for moving into this space. Uh, it must have been really exciting to have uh, picked up a role like that where you could see clearly, you know, you were able to do the things that you loved to do. Yes, absolutely. And it really was. It was all of those things coming together. It was mm-hmm. the passion for film and television. It was the experience in being able to bid for big things on an international scale to mm-hmm. maximise the benefit back for the state, which I was doing at Queensland Events Corporation. Mm-hmm. But here I was doing that in film and television, but securing international production for Queensland. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yes, it really brought sort of the, those skill sets I developed across the various things I'd done along with the film and television passion that had been part Mm -hmm. of my degree as well and and brought them back together. And a couple of years in that role? A couple of years in that role and then I was given a tap on the shoulder um, to apply for the role of Film Commissioner for Australia for um, Ausfilm, which was based in Los Angeles. Right. So uh, back to the US. (laughs) So back to the US. Okay. So in 2004, um, I headed off to the US. And again, I have to say, I crammed for that interview as well. I wanted that job so badly. It was so clear to me. Those kind of opportunities must have stacks of people that you know would love absolutely Mm. really competitive um you know i I knew so many other people that were applying for it and you know just 
I, I went into that like I go into anything that I'm really passionate about in terms of I knew everything that I needed to know about the role. I knew about myself and what my strengths were. Um, I really knew what I thought I could deliver for that role um, and where I saw the growth opportunities for that, for that company. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and that's how I approached it. I went in with everything got the role and then you know moved over to the US in 2004 and I was there for 10 years. Okay and uh, 10 years in that role I imagine you would have mm. seen not only substantive change in the industry but substantive mm. change in the way that Australia was being perceived as part of the industry yes. and so on. You know what were some of the, the you know the key milestones during that 10 years that looking back on you're most proud of? Mm. So uh, a lot did change in those 10 years and part of it was the incentives that come out of Australia. So during that period there was the introduction of the producer offset. Okay. Now the producer offset is really for Australian productions, not for American productions. Mm -hmm. uh, and it basically gives Australian producers a 40% incentive for feature film or 20 for television. Um, to make their projects here. So it's about, you know, making sure creatively there's great writers, producers and directors mm -hmm. in Australia and telling stories. Um, and so, when you say 40%, for example, mm. do, do you mean 40, they would get an additional 40% of their spend mm -hmm. provided by government? That's correct, right. okay. in Australia. Right. Um, and so one of the things that I was tasked with was also promoting the producer offset, mm -hmm. which then changed my role from just bringing American productions to Australia, but also finding pathways for Australian producers um, to find financing partners, distribution okay. partners, producing mm -hmm. partners. And so it really was an expansion of my role. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I really learned, I think, in America was how important relationships are. And, you know, I'm actually quite a shy person. I hide it incredibly uh -huh. well. It's a skill I've worked on. Um, and going from Australia where I knew a lot of people to the US where I didn't know anyone mm -hmm. and I had to be able to walk in a room and shake hands with decision makers about where production goes um, and really influence their decision. You know, that was a really important time for me in, in learning how to develop really meaningful business relationships mm -hmm. and so that was something I really got out of that and I often joke that um, the, the, the secret to building great relationships is actually to be really interested in the person you're talking oh, absolutely. with <laughs> because when you start asking them questions about not just work related like mm -hmm. can I have your production please and bring it to Australia and spend all your money but you get to know about their family you get to know about their pets you get to know about what they like to do outside of work what are their passions that aren't on their resume then you actually start to find you have things in common and you have that common ground um, and you know, and your relationship goes from being a business relationship to a personal relationship. Mm -hmm. And I really learned that in the US. And did you learn that through uh, somebody sharing that with you or reading or was it just an innate you know, attribute that you started to develop personally? I think I started to see it in Americans. Okay. That they would ask me things when we'd go for a lunch meeting that uh, I wasn't used to being asked in a right. meeting. Okay. And so, you know, Americans are, um, I think, really good at business relationships uh -huh. and are real champions of each other as well. Mm -hmm. You know, sort of we have a bit of, we still have that tall poppy syndrome here mm -hmm. in Australia and I see that, you know, regularly here. But there they really support each other and mm. cheer each other on and so they support each other in a really different way and that includes how relationships are built. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think that I picked that up from observing okay. um, that behaviour in others. Yeah. And that really changed things for me. Mm -hmm. And then being able to move from, you know, attracting production to being able to get an Australian producer in the door with someone who could actually finance their project and being able to use my relationships I built um, and have those personal relationships that they would trust me when I would pick up the phone and say, hey, there's this project I really think you should consider. Mm -hmm. um, you know, would you take a meeting with them? Um, that was... I think a changer for me mm -hmm. in terms of how I saw my own ability and my ability to influence. And, and because you were largely being supported by Australian government mm. to really have that role of being a connector, mm. how do you go about measuring your performance? Um, you know, were you, did you need to achieve certain key performance indicators in terms of spend, or mm. uh, or was it really more of a you know? go out there and shake hands and kiss babies and hopefully good things will come out of it. <laughs> no, definitely KPIs right. were in there. So, um, yes, which is all about uh, 
turning those relationships into actual spend on the right. ground okay. and growing that. Um, and so the interesting thing about that is, for example, uh, we have incredible visual effects houses in Australia. Mm-hmm. And it would be how do you grow that pocket of work from being a couple of shots to actually being a more substantial pack- right. package. Okay. And getting people to trust that you have the uh, capacity and mm-hmm. the capability to do those things. Okay. And so my measurements were certainly on that growth of right. Okay. So if we just use that as an example, Mm. uh, can you look back at particular films that were produced during that time and go, okay, so that's, you know, where, uh, you know, I took a very um, positive role in creating those outcomes? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I just had one recently where we had Hacksaw Ridge at the Oscars, right? right? So I introduced the producer of that, an American bill mechanic to the um, Australian side because it was actually made as an Australian film. Uh So I brought the Australian people into the room with Bill, who I knew on the other side of that, and really... You know, I have uh, no ownership with my Screen Queensland hat of that film. It was done in Sydney. Um, But I can look back to when I was at Ausfilm and I made that relationship happen, which enabled that film to happen in Australia and that spend happen in Australia. And, you know, and I have had the incredible experience on the film Unbroken of sitting in the world premiere in Sydney in a theatre of about 2,000 people Mm -hmm. and knowing that I was sitting in that seat without anyone knowing who I was, but knowing that that film had happened because of me in Australia, which is a a nice thing to be able to sit back and look at 2,000 people who have worked on that film Mm. and know that while none of them know you had anything to do with it, that you had a huge... You were a real catalyst for that happening here. Oh, that's excellent. Fantastic. Mm. And it was during that time that you went back to university and did uh, some business qualifications. It was. So while I was in the US, um, I had an incredible opportunity to go to the Marshall School of Business, Mm -hmm. uh, which was actually just down the road from where I lived in USC. I lived in West Adams, which is basically where USC is. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, that was really fascinating for me because the other students were from all different sorts of business backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it wasn't really even just about what I was learning, but it was working with them in a team capacity and learning from their experiences, which were, you know, different to mine, but had similarities as well Mm -hmm. um, in terms of their sort of business acumen and what they were bringing to the table. Um, And I found that to really... um, be a, an incredible growth experience for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, what qualification did that lead to? So, I don't know the official title of that. Right. <laughs> um, but essentially it's, yeah, like a business degree. Like an MBA. Or... Yes. Yeah, right. Okay, cool. And uh, and so what brought you back to Australia? So in 2000, and, end of 2013, I was back here for work mm-hmm. uh, with Ausfilm and travelling around the country meeting with uh, various um, industry people. And I come to Queensland and had a meeting with Screen Queensland with Mm -hmm. some of the staff. And at that time, uh, Screen Queensland was going through a not so great time, Mm -hmm. uh, having, you know, been in that not so enviable uh, enviable position on the front page of the Courier Mail with the sort of headline lights, camera in action. Um, Bullying stuff was playing out through the Mm -hmm. media. it's just, it was a very ugly time, I think, for the organisation. Mm-hmm. You said and the headline was lights, camera, in, in action. action. Yeah, that's not a good <laughs> Front page of the Curie now, <laughs> yeah. No, not, nobody wants that. Not their finest moment. <laughs> not their finest moment. But, uh, you know, and Ausfilm works with all of the state agencies mm-hmm. in Australia. And so, of course, even from the US, I had I knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. But when I met with this, a couple of staff that were here, what really sort of caught me off guard was how positive they were about what they dreamed for the organisation going forward, what they hoped a new CEO would bring in in terms of the culture of the Mm organisation and rebuilding bridges with industry. Mm -hmm. And as I sat in that lunch and listened to them so positive, sort of in the face of all of the adversity that the organisation had been going through, everything they were saying they hoped for, I kept thinking, well, I could deliver that. Mm. I can do that. And it really, I hadn't been thinking about coming back to Australia at all. And I loved my job in America, but it really sat with me and just kept eating away at me. And literally while I was here and I spent some time with my family and I spoke with my husband and I was like, I think I have to do this. Like Mm. this is, there's something calling me to this role. Mm. And so I went back to the US and I applied for the role and, uh, you know, and it's funny because the recruiter at the time said to me, his first response to me was, I'm really sorry, but we've just shortlisted. Right. 
And I went back to him and I said, well, you know, I appreciate that you've shortlisted. However, for the sake of experience over experience, I think you're making a big mistake if you don't at least look at my resume. So he did look at my resume and submitted it to the board who were doing the interviews. And I got a call saying I was now on the shortlist and I would be interviewed as well. Fantastic. Mm. So, yes, then went through that process right. of interviewing. And that was, um, as I said, December 2013. Um, I got a call after the interview asking if I could fly to Australia mm -hmm. as soon as possible for a face-to-face -face interview. Uh, so I did that. I flew out here on Boxing Day mm -hmm. and um, went through those interviews and I was offered the role on the 31st of December. Uh-huh. So Happy very, New Year. Very quick um, and started on the 17th of February. Okay. So which was... a in hindsight, not a mistake to take the role, but a mistake to do it in that time period because trying to pack up a life of 10 mm, years, sure. I had a small child, mm -hmm. I had 10 animals at the time. 10 animals. And, uh, you know, and a house and a, actually a second house that we had tenants in mm -hmm. and uh, it created an immense stress to try and do it in the time frame that we did it in. Mm -hmm. And I, I imagine, you know, for somebody working as an actor mm. to think, wow, I'm moving from LA mm. where it's all happening to yes. Brisbane. Yes. That must have been, you know, quite a consideration for your husband as well. Yeah, look at there. I have. I'm really blessed in that way because Joey, my husband, is uh, incredibly supportive, mm -hmm. and it was a family decision. And I think that it's really important, well, certainly for me, that our decisions about the longevity of careers or the choices we make as a family are a family decisions. Mm -hmm. It's not just a great career for me. I'm going to go do it. Yeah. Um, and so we had had the discussion, and he was pretty keen to give it a go because mm -hmm. if nothing. It, you know, it was a three-year contract, and uh, worst-case scenario, we'd come for three years and we'd go back to America. Um, I wish I'd given myself a little more time mm -hmm. just because when I got here and there was so much to do when I hit the ground um, and having left sort of in that state of panic trying to get out of the country and, you know, start a new life here, um, I think that it, it just probably my stress was really elevated right. and I think it would have been better to hit the ground probably in a little more composed sure. stage. Okay. And how many of your 10 animals did you bring with you? So we brought two. Oh, two. <laughs> so I think you were saying dogs. Yes. Yeah, so two of the dogs come with us. Right. One uh, was rehomed with um, someone I, I had adopted this dog that had been a stylist dog okay so it was a very fancy tiny little poodle right. thing and um everybody wanted that dog so it was the easiest one to rehome uh -huh. and now lives in a mansion so it's got a fabulous right. life okay. um a lot of the cats that i had were feral cats from the neighborhood that i lived in right and we had such an amazing community um that all of the neighbors sort of stuck their hands up mm -hmm. and like well we don't we want the cats to stay here because this is their mm -hmm. this is where they're from they were off the streets um, and so we sold our house and one of the cats moved back home and the owners kept the cat right um, the other cats are all living with the neighbors okay <laughs> so I actually get to go visit them which is great <laughs> um, and there was one I couldn't bring which was my rabbit right. because rabbits are not allowed That's in Queensland right. to this day so anyway she stayed there as well and okay. a part of the condition when we sold our house was that the owners would take her on and they couldn't have been more excited right. so <laughs> oh there you go and so um you, you come into this role uh there had been some challenges uh so you were really coming in to fix things mm. up but what, yes. what was the mandate well the mandate was to deliver the strategic plan that had been written 12 months before and okay. hadn't been implemented yet mm -hmm. so there was a three-year existing strategic plan and uh the board really wanted that implemented mm -hmm. um, and delivered the second thing was I had to fix the culture of the organisation um, and really rebuild both internally and externally the relationships. Mm -hmm. And why I say externally is because of all of the stuff that had been going on in Screen Queensland, our relationship with our industry had become really fractured. Mm -hmm. um, and I think even with, uh, with the Minister for the portfolio at that time, I think, you know, as I understand it, there was no sort of communication even between the CEO and and the minister at that time. So there was a lot of work to be done. Um, and I also am not the sort of person who comes in all guns blazing and, you know, get rid of everybody and start again. Because I think that, that one of, what I discovered really quickly when I come into the organisation was there was a really... There was really great people here mm -hmm. that just hadn't been empowered to do their job. 
And it was really about looking at, well, yes, what are the strategic priorities and what do we have to deliver, but also what are the capabilities of the people that are already here and how do I best enable them to do their jobs really well to deliver that strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I think that nobody had really expected me to keep all the staff. Mm-hmm. And I did. Um, And there was, you know, our CFO had resigned, I think, six months before, but was still here because the board had kept asking her to stay until the new CEO arrived. And then, you know, within three months of my being here, she was meant to be going and she come and said, look, I'd like to stay. And so she stayed. So, you know, I think that it was great to build the trust within Mm -hmm. the team and for them to actually feel that they had Mm -hmm. um, the trust of the CEO and whilst you'd been obviously in very senior uh, mm. and very um, uh, critical roles, this yes. was your first true CEO. Absolutely. Gig. So one of the questions I like to ask is, you know, stepping into that role mm. when you did some kind of um, internal self audit, yes, and you thought, okay, I've got some good skills here, but where yes. where do you perceive the gaps? You know, you think if I'm going to really do this job well, there's yes. certain skills that I need to spend some time to really uh, improve in. What were they? Yes. That was a lot. <laughs> um, you know, I think like a lot, probably a lot of people in first time CEO roles, I bought every book out there on right. like what to do in your first 100 days. Okay. And, um, and so I had like that six weeks of cramming. Yeah. <laughs> but I also knew that I didn't have the experience or the expertise to do everything. Mm-hmm. And so part of, you know, understanding that, you know, I didn't know really how to run a financial plan for an entire organization. Mm-hmm. So I went and got that skill. I went and did the courses to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I sat down with other people who are in those sort of roles and really got to understand a, you know, a financial plan and how to run a budget. And um, I'd always had budgets for the divisions I'd been in, but not for an entire organization mm-hmm. and how to prioritize um, within that. And when things shift, how do I, you know, make adjustments along the way? Sure. And so I think that one was knowing... I wasn't an expert on everything. Yeah. Where I needed to have expertise, go and get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I definitely did that. Same with, you know, I'd worked in strategic planning um, in a number of organisations that I'd been in, but I'd never been in charge of it before. Um, and so I might have been in charge of the specific area of the that I'd worked in, but not mm. for an entire organisation. Um, but, you know, the interesting thing was when I come in here that the previous strategic plan had really been written by two people, for me, it was really about bringing all of the senior management into that, but also to bring the entire team on board to mm-hmm. actually feel ownership of that strategic plan. Um, you know, so I think, think some of it is, yes, was new to me doing it the first time, um, but equally, I had really incredible mentors that I could lean on. Um, I had an abundance of opportunities to go and do courses and, you know, and I'm really passionate about continually growing. I think the growth is important no matter what age you are. There's mm-hmm. always more to learn. Um, and so, you know, I prioritise learning in the specific areas where I needed to in the short short term. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned it was a, a three-month contract. Three, but, yeah, three years. Oh, three contract. years, sorry, yes. three-year contract. But you've, the three years has been and gone now. It has. So uh, <laughs> uh, obviously it's gone well. Yes, it's gone very well. So in the organisation's 25-year history, I think this will be the third we will have done the top three years in the okay. organization's history. Oh, so, And other than, you know, those sort of quantifiable mm. measurements, you know, what what are some of the, the qualitative things that you're really proud of? Oh, gosh, there's so much I'm proud of. Um, look, if I think... Well, I'll say the things... There's, there's a lot I'm really proud of. One is... Um, you know, I've kept the staff. I've delivered the dollars in terms of outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done things like, for example, I did a probity review. Um, I brought in an external law firm to do that. And that can be terrifying for staff who have just been through what that was a lot of sure. bullying and, you know, big brother stuff going on and whatever. But it was, for me, getting the staff to buy into that and understand this was about making their decisions defensible and mm-hmm. transparent. Um, I think having the industry um, stand up and be our biggest advocates um, has been really meaningful for me. Um, you know, just having sort of... What's the way I can describe it? Um, raving fans. Right. You know? And that doesn't mean everybody, because we're an organisation sure. that has to say no to people. And yeah. not everybody likes hearing no. Mm-hmm. 
which is fair enough. Um, but, you know, ultimately having a lot of people in our industry actually saying, we're really proud of our relationship with you. We're really proud to be part of these initiatives. Uh, we finally see Queensland prospering and having a real industry that's viable and not having to leave and go interstate. Mm -hmm. For me, that's the reason why I want to keep doing what I'm mm -hmm. doing. And there's been lots of positives. Mm. If you look back over that three years with hindsight, mm. always being 2020, is there something that you did or didn't do and in retrospect you think, boy, if I'd done that differently, I perhaps would have got a better result? Yeah, mm. I mean, of course. Um, you know, and it's interesting because, you know, I had uh, a, I had something that was really challenging, in that uh, was getting got someone really offside for doing actually doing what we should be doing, so uh -huh. doing the job. But someone who was really important to us in in our sort of chain of command, right? Um, who was really upset about something that had happened, and. You know, I become quite emotional about that and mm -hmm. I, I'm really thankful that it happened just before the holidays because mm -hmm. I got to go away and actually get my head together and mm -hmm. think about that and get a context for it and understand, be able to step out of the emotional and understand their response mm -hmm. and why it happened that way. Um, and so in hindsight, I probably would have delivered the news that I had to deliver in a different way. Mm -hmm. I can't go into too much no, details no, about sure. what it was. But, but what, what was the, the key learning for you? I mean... I, CEOs and indeed yeah. any leader, you know, are faced with those kind of challenges regularly. Yes, yeah. Uh, what What did you learn about yourself through that process? Yeah. So look, I I learned sometimes you've got to step out of your, you know. For me, I'm very clear on what the priorities for the organisation mm -hmm. are and the strategy and so on. But sometimes I have to step back from that and see it from someone else's perspective, mm -hmm. um, and understand their view on it. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, if I'd done that, it would have been a different outcome. Mm. Um, and I think that I will manage that differently going forward mm -hmm. when it comes to things that could have an impact on someone else. Mm. Um, you know, whereas I was very sort of headed in one direction and very clear because I knew it was the right thing, but it did have an impact on someone else. So mm. I just, I think that I've got clarity around stepping into other people's shoes sometimes. Mm -hmm. and having an empathetic leadership uh, consideration. Yes, and I generally I think that I am very empathetic, mm -hmm. um, but I think in this instance I I wasn't thinking enough about that. Yeah, well, um, I think you know there's a tendency when people are busy, and I mean you're yes, very busy, yes. to you just want to get out and get things yes. done, and um, uh, and so now I'm quite interested because I talk to a lot of people who say, oh look, I'm an aspiring non-executive director, mm. and it's you know takes them quite some time to build any kind of portfolio. Yes. I mean, you've been back here for three years. You've <laughs> yes. got what five directorships as well as a full-time CEO gig. I, do. I mean, apart from the fact that uh, time management must be incredibly difficult. Yeah. How, how did you go about really building that sort of board? presence over what is in comparison to many people a very short time yes so no well a number of things one i had been on a board in the u.s so mm -hmm. i was on the board of australians in film and mm -hmm. i had um gone from being a board member to the president of that organization which in australia would be the chair of that mm -hmm. organization um and led that organization through immense growth um, and cultural change so in terms of where I've come here and had to do that within an organisation, I really had that experience mm -hmm. there in, in terms of a, being a director on a board. Um, and when I returned here, you know, I went and did the company director's course with mm -hmm. the AICD. Um, and I think that that was really important too. And it was something that the board of Screen Queensland wanted me to do. Mm -hmm. Because from their perspective, it gave me sort of an overview of risk and mm, strategy absolutely. and um, all of those things that I needed to understand in terms of reporting to a board. But equally, um, it provided me with an incredible opportunity to mm -hmm. really get my own skill sure. set as a director on a board. Yeah. Um, I was approached for the Q Music role um, really because of how Arts Queensland have seen me performing mm -hmm. in my role with Screen Queensland. Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's not a paid role. So mm -hmm. the first couple of directorships I did were not paid. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that there's benefit, there's benefit for that mm -hmm. um, in terms of me developing my skills as a director, but equally in terms of what I can give back mm. um, and learn from. So I think that that's a, a real mutual benefit mm -hmm. in terms of taking on. They approached on, you? They approached me. Okay, yeah. 
Um, and I'd also, sorry, I should also mention, I had ended up on the board of Ausfilm. Right. So the company I used to work for, um, as it's a member association, uh-huh. and Screen Queensland is a member, and they have a number of screen agency directors on that board, as well as private industry members. Okay. And so with my Screen Queensland role, I ended up being a director on that board as well. So mm-hmm. I had those two. I was approached to be on the to interview for the RSPCA Queensland board because of a CEO I met through a CEO's group. Right. So one of the other things I've is also that Mark. Yes, yeah. Mark. Mark right. is fantastic. Um, so we sat in a CEO's group together. Right. And you know, again for me, that's about learning and growing through mm-hmm. peers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I had been doing that, and I had taken the time out to go and visit the RSPCA. Mm-hmm. And Mark was giving me a tour. And again, that's, as I said before, about relationships. It's all about being beyond what your immediate need is in a, as an organisation, but building personal relationships. And so I'd gone out and spent time with Mark and done yep. the tour of the and he, um, of the RSPCA and the Wildlife Hospital. And, um, and in that process, he said to me, you know, we're interviewing for board directors at the moment. I think you'd actually be fantastic. And so I sent my resume and I interviewed and I was given mm-hmm. that role, which was fantastic. Um, Sunshine Coast Arts Advisory Board was one I applied for. It was listed as a directorship. Mm-hmm. Um, so I applied for that. And, you know, and again, it's arts and culture. I'm coming from a particular experience in the screen industry, mm-hmm. um, but it does have broader applications. Uh, and so I was interviewed and, again, appointed to that board. Um, so, yeah, so there's a whole range of sure. different ways that these things come. But I think, you know, the, the key things for me were going and actually getting the training and mm-hmm. understanding about what a director does, being willing to do it um, in a non-profit, non-paid way mm-hmm. at first to sort of build my experience. And thirdly, through building relationships. Um, Absolutely. Uh, mm-hmm. Textbook advice. And, you know, I, uh, I think that what, one of the things about you, and, you know, I've only just met you today, but certainly by reputation mm-hmm. and so on, is you've built a tremendous personal brand. And not only if you built a personal brand, but it's quite a niche brand mm-hmm. too. So uh, that's enabled you to attract opportunities and also to pursue opportunities which are very closely aligned with yes. what you're all about. And yes. I think a lot of people go and do AICD and they want to become a director, but they don't really take the time to think about those key considerations uh, and become very uh, specific and focused about their pursuit of particular board roles. Yes. So uh, I think you've, I mean, you've done tremendously well. And, and so now looking to the future, mm. you know, if we were sitting down in five or ten years' time, you know, what would you hope to be doing then? Yes, that's a very good question. So I want to continue to grow, mm-hmm. absolutely for me. Um, I think that, you know, whatever I do, it will be because I'm passionate about it. Um, because I wake up and I feel like it's my mission to deliver that. And I certainly see that I will grow my board roles. Um, Not to say I want more than five, I actually don't. I'm very happy with where I'm at. And for me to take on something else would mean I give something up. And Mm -hmm. that's really about time management Mm -hmm. and actually making sure that as a director that I'm actually doing my due diligence Mm -hmm. and asking good questions and so on and not spreading myself too thin. Um, So I certainly see that that's the direction I want to continue to head in um, and to make sure that I have a skill set that enables me to be an incredible director. Mm -hmm. So ideally you're going to step into a a full-time portfolio career rather than pursuing more CEO um, type roles? Look, I think maybe in the next five years I will probably take on another CEO role but yeah. ultimately within probably the next 10 years mm-hmm. I see myself as a professional director. Yeah right okay mm-hmm. great and so uh, we've talked a lot through your career history yes. um, one of the main reasons people listen to this podcast is to learn from those who have walked the path before them yes. and I mean you've spoken along the way about some key personal learnings and mm-hmm. uh, things that you did in order to accelerate or develop mm-hmm. your own career but is there anything that we haven't discussed that you'd like to if you were sitting in front of an aspiring CEO would be part of your wisdom that you would share? Oh, it's a big question. Uh, look, I think you've, it's, for me, I don't know, I have a natural interest in a lot of things and mm-hmm. really, uh, you know, I have my, my Twitter handle as CEO with passion because I am really passionate about everything I do, um, whether it's, you know, volunteering on a Sunday to work at the RSPCA. Now that I'm on the board, I've just 
discovered that, you know, I also want to understand what they're doing on a very ground level to mm. see how further I can sort of grow that. So, mm-hmm. you know, when I dig into something, I like to dig really deep. And um, it's funny, my husband called me on the weekend the undercover boss because <laughs> I'm doing that. He's like, the undercover boss. Right. Um, but, you know, I think that it is. It's about building your relationships. Um, it's about seeing opportunities and sticking your hand up. And I, particularly for women who are interested in being a CEO or being on the board, is I think women often wait until they feel like they've got all their ducks in a row mm. and they've got all the qualifications mm. and they've got all the experience and they don't stick their hand up. Sure. Whereas men will stick their hand up much sooner. Yeah. I so talk about that a lot. It's true, yeah. right? And so I'm not that person. I have three brothers. Mm. I'm used to sticking my hand up really fast mm-hmm. and fighting for things. And as I said, like when I interview for things, I am so prepared um, because I don't want to ever sort of doubt my capability or doubt mm. my ability. So I walk in with no doubt. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really important. I think, yes, you do your homework, but equally stick your hand up before you think you're ready mm-hmm. uh, because often... You know, you might be the right candidate, even if you don't feel you're ready. But you've got to believe that you can do it. Oh, completely. I, uh, I've mentioned this a few times uh, on this podcast, so I'll say. But you know, I went to a uh, a uh, women's um, gender mm. diversity debate, and there were about a hundred women there and yes. four or five guys. And these women were saying that they were being denied opportunities. So I went back and I analysed my four most recent C-level roles, three of which were in not-for-profits. We had 800 unique applicants, of which only 7% were women. And yet I can say now, in eight years of my business, Arate Executive, 98% of the time, if not 100% of the time, our clients say we would definitely like a woman. Or at least we definitely want female representation on shortlist. So I don't think that it's being... necessarily being denied the opportunities there needs to be more education which you've just done thank you to say take a risk and you know apply for a role perhaps you don't feel entirely qualified for because people want to support you to be successful yes absolutely and you know and seek out mentors and they don't have to be formal mentors as well because Mm -hmm. you know I've never had a formal mentor I've never had the will you be my mentor Mm -hmm. role for myself I have people approach me but that's a that's when I'm mentoring um but those mentors have been people for me who have said to me you know when I've gone with a question about you know do you think I should go on this trip to this thing and and they've sort of redirected me back well is that going to help deliver the priorities what are the priorities that you're trying to achieve they Mm -hmm. haven't said yes or no to me they've actually enabled me to go back and reframe my thinking and for me then I've I've then realized that they're going to be an incredible mentor and I really start to lean on them and Mm -hmm. learn from them and Um, And the other thing, you know, I'll say is, you know, one of the things with the CEO groups that I've been involved in was there was an opportunity um, to step into one where they're much bigger businesses than the one I'm running. And that, for me, is the absolute one I want to be in, right? right? It's about surrounding yourself with the people that you aspire to be like Mm -hmm. um, and be with the people who are going to help drive your sort of journey forward. Mm -hmm. And whether that's your friends, you know, in a personal capacity, I want to be around people that I think are really positive and Mm -hmm. that sort of have the same values or will challenge my values and enable me to grow. But the same in my professional life. I want to be with the people who are doing the things that I want to do. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, so definitely for women. And I'm very passionate about uh, career opportunities and career pathways for women mm-hmm. and seeing more women sort of sitting in the seat that I'm sitting in. And I really do think that women have to, it's not just the risk of the organisation to take on someone without the experience, but it is the willingness and the risk that people are willing to take on themselves and stick their hand up and, and put themselves out there. Absolutely. And just to close out, Tracy, because uh, we've taken up a lot of your time today, <laughs> you know, uh, you're obviously an extremely busy person with your mm-hmm. work and, you know, uh, your board roles and so on, yes. but when you're not working, what are the things that you like to do other than volunteering for the RSPCA yes. to uh, keep your battery charged and enthusiastic about life. Yeah, so you'll think I'm crazy, but I also have a six-year-old child <laughs> <laughs> who I who is the love of my life, as long along with my husband, and um, and you know we do a lot of fun things together. And really, my spare time is focused purely on my family. Yeah. Um, and really, other than giving back in mm-hmm. terms of volunteering stuff, it's really focused on spending quality time with my child. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I'm home, I don't have my phone 
out. I'm not on my computer. When I leave the office or leave whatever the workplace, yeah. I literally leave. Right. Um, I may miss listen to podcasts and stuff to motivate me when I'm driving mm-hmm. or on the way home. But the minute I get out of that car at home, I am switched on to being mom. Yeah. Um, the, I, which I actually think is the most important role that I have out of everything I do. Sure. Um, and that is, you know, so joyous for me. So this weekend, I like a lot of other people out at Bunnings buying manure for my veggie garden right. because I love gardening with my son. Um, we do a lot of beach activities. Right. And yeah, so it's oh, really... Yeah, I took my, my kids my to the movies this weekend. Yes. And, uh, you know, I think as a parent who I love good cinema to have to go and sit through some of these kids' films yes. is uh, quite excruciating. But uh, <laughs> uh, it's the things we have to okay. do. I'll give you something to do when you're watching them. So he, this is the, the thing that really... Is, as a screen, you know, advocate, right. is uh, count how many girls are in those things because often there's 2.4 boys for one girl. Right. They're the things boys have to say is of more value than what girls have to say on the okay. screen. And in crowd scenes, it's often the percentage of only 17% females compared to males. Right. So some really challenging things there in terms of girls being motivated by what they get to see on screen. And mm. it, and we don't notice it when we're watching it. Mm. And the perfect example is Nemo. Right. There's only one female in the entire ocean. Wow. And none of us noticed it when we watched it. Okay. So as parents, and particularly parents of, if you've got a daughter, mm-hmm. really have to come alive to the fact that we need to do better in screen. And is that something that there is active lobbying to have changed? Yes, absolutely. Right. Um, and I feel really strongly about it. I think we've laid a good foundation now in terms of sort of creatively what we want to do, but I think that there's a bigger conversation to be had yeah, in terms right. of how we reinforce gender in the stuff that we watch on television. Okay. Oh, well, I'll have to uh, yes. pay attention to that now. <laughs> well, look, Tracy, I really appreciate your time. Uh, thanks very much. One of the things we haven't spoken about, it would probably I'd just like <laughs> 60 seconds on, you know, winning the Telstra Award. Uh, yes. That must be in a tremendous... Um, uh, reflection, you know, for yourself in terms of, you know, knowing that you're doing good work and so on. But um, looking to the future now, how do yes. you imagine that having won that award is going to assist you in terms of, you know, getting the the awareness around the, the various things that you're yes. doing? It's actually been a great platform for me. Um, mm-hmm. I've spoken at more events than I've ever spoken at right. um, since November. And it's really opened doors for me in terms of sort of, I guess, corporate Brisbane Mm -hmm. and areas outside of screen and arts and culture and I actually think it's really important that uh, I get to take that voice and some of the things I just talked about in terms of gender diversity and Mm -hmm. and that on screen I think it's really important that I build awareness within all of the community and so the Telstra Awards have actually given me a really unique platform um, for messaging and for actually sharing things that need change or where I can have a social impact Um, and so that's how I'm going to use that. Oh good for you well look uh, thanks again and have a fantastic Thank you very much. Well, I trust you enjoyed that conversation with Tracy. I look forward to having you along for future episodes of the Arate podcast. And in the meantime, have a fantastic week.